Spirit for the reading of the gospel. This is from Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 14. It is as if a man, going on a journey, summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you have handed me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master replied, you wicked and lazy slave. You knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you had to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with ten talents. For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the gospel of grace. Thanks be to God. I've never gotten quite that reaction. (laughs) This morning, I want to walk us through two very different readings of this parable. Not to mention, today is also the day for my annual stewardship sermon, so buckle up, we've got a lot of ground to cover in a short amount of time. The first way to read this parable is the traditional way the way you've probably heard it interpreted in the past, which is to say that God will be disappointed in us if we do not use what we have been given. There are some good reasons to read it differently than that, which I will get to in a minute, but before we do that, let's see what the traditional interpretation might have to say to us. I was delighted to learn that in the 16th and 17th century, women used this parable to defend their right to preach and lead in the church arguing that if God had given them the talent and capacity to do something, 
it would be wrong not to use their God-given gifts. And so for the church to force women to bury their talents in the ground was an injustice and an affront to God. Thus, this text has been read to support the argument that all of us are called by God to use the gifts we've been given, whether it be our intellect, our voice, or our wisdom. But of course, in the actual parable, talents are currency, not abilities. A talent was actually an amount of money equal to about 20 years of wages. So when we, talk, when we use this parable to talk about burying our talents, we are turning the story into an allegory, right? Which may or may not have been the storyteller's original intent. But because this parable has been routinely allegorized for centuries, let's go with that interpretation for a bit and see where it takes us. Especially given the month of the year, known to most of the church universal as the month leading up to Advent, but known around Lakeshore as the month in which pledge cards are due. (laughs) I do want us to think a minute about the analogy of burying one's talents. Not just in terms of whether we're willing to give of our own gifts and time and resources to the church, but also in terms of whether the church is willing to give gifts and time and resources to do the work of God's kingdom. It seems to me there is more than one way to bury talents. You could hoard your gifts and your blessings to yourself as an individual. That is certainly true. Also, we could hoard our collective talents and resources to ourselves as a congregation. As a community, we could expend all our time and energy and money to preserve and maintain this institution and its building so that everything we spend goes right back into this one plot of earth and doesn't reach, reach outwards into the community around us. Now, don't misunderstand me to be saying that I think we have to stop paying the electric bill or paying the staff. (laughs) Not quite ready to top myself out of an income. But I'm sure you're aware that the, the older an institution grows, the more the daily maintenance and the upkeep of the institution begins to suck up everyone's time and the organization's money. The original mission of a place easily becomes secondary to the preservation of the institution. And we start serving and working in order to keep the institution the way it was, rather than working and serving to do God's work in the world. And listen close for the wind of the Spirit and the calling of transformation. The shift can be subtle and slow, and we don't even notice it's happening. We start to need more and more volunteers just to keep the show running, and sometimes we lose sight of why we're putting on this show in the first place. So when we talk about stewardship, let us be challenged not only to think about the ways in which God might be calling us as individuals to participate more fully in the life of the community we call the church, both with our finances and our time, let us also think collectively about how God might be calling us as a group and as a church to use our finances and time for the good of the world and in service to the poor. Let us make sure we are not digging holes in our own property, keeping all the goods right here rather than allowing our gifts to blossom and bear fruit around our city and around our world. And yet, to read this parable 
as an allegory about how we use our God-given talents rather glosses over the parable's disturbing details. According to the parable, the third servant hid his money because the master was, quote, a harsh man, reaping where he did not sow and gathering where he did not scatter seed. And when the master discovered the servant's lack of profit, he angrily cast him out into the outer darkness where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. If we presume this parable to be an allegory in which master equals God, we have on our hands a harsh and exacting God, quick to condemn and averse to showing mercy. Now compare the master in this parable to the father in the parable of the prodigal son in the Gospel of Luke, and we are left with two very different (laughs) images. One image is of a generous father who literally runs to greet his estranged son who wantonly wasted all of his inheritance. The other image depicts a slave master who instantaneously and without hesitation cast out anyone who fails to be productive. Or compare this parable of the talents to the parable of the workers in the vineyard from Matthew chapter 20 in which those who worked only one hour are given the same wages as those who worked all day. Again, an image of a lavishly, almost ridiculously generous God who values you for showing up at all, regardless of the volume of your accomplishments. I tend to believe images matter that the visuals either enhance or damage our experience of God. And so as I searched for artwork to display on our worship guides this morning, I just couldn't bring myself to select any of the art depicting a master casting away his servant, or an image of servants fearfully trembling, awaiting a verdict from their master, or a picture of a servant with arms full of some 200 years' worth of wages gleefully being given more as it is taken from someone with much less. None of these images help me connect with God. To put it more bluntly, none of these images reveal God. Instead, they display profit and greed, things the Bible calls the root of all evil. I chose instead a different biblical image to introduce worship this morning, that of a tearful father embracing with affection the prodigal son come home. To me, this image has power to tell us something true about God. Even limited as it is by color and gender, a particular artist's interpretation and the snapshot brevity of a larger story, there is a spiritual truth shining there transcending the limitations of the image. Not so with the master in the parable of the talents. I do not experience anything transcendent there. So what are we to make of this uncomfortable disparity of images? Was Jesus confused about what God was like? In reading today's text, are we to throw out our notion of a compassionate God? and instead accept a taskmaster of a God intent on earning profit? How do we both take this passage seriously and take seriously the compassion of God made incarnate in Jesus Christ?
First, we must take a moment to understand parables as genre. One does not interpret a sci-fi film the same way as a historical drama, the same way as a slapstick comedy. The Bible, too, is made up of various genres, and parables are Jesus' particular favorite. It's worth noting that many parables do not operate allegorically, in which every character in detail represents something else. Take, for example, the parable of the Good Samaritan in which the Samaritan is not code for God or anyone else, but simply functions as a Samaritan. The Levite is a Levite. The priest is a priest. The power of that particular parable is rooted not in allegory, but in the surprising reality of an actual Samaritan behaving with more compassion than an actual priest. For some reason, I suspect the patriarchy, We have been conditioned to think that every time a parable features a ruler, a king, or a master, the man in authority must represent God, regardless of whether or not Jesus himself draws any comparison. So let us suspend for a moment our automatic assumption that the master is God in this parable. In fact, given his irascible behavior, it is probably safer and more accurate to assume the master is not God. What if the master is simply a master, and the parable is not a proper allegory but a simple story? If we read it again, removing God as master, what does the parable say this time? To help with this rereading, let's zoom out a bit and look at what Jesus says both before and after. It's another guideline for understanding parables or any part of the Bible, for that matter. It's to look at the full context. Knowing the whole story is critical to the work of interpretation. So, Jesus tells three parables in this particular chapter of Matthew. And the first one is about the bridesmaids waiting for the bridegroom, in which Jesus seems to be reminding the disciples to remain alert. God's kingdom is at hand. Then second, Jesus tells the parable of the talents that we read today. And then finally, he tells the parable of the sheep and goats, which imagines a scene at the end of the age in which the Son of Man separates all people into sheep or goats based on what? Whether they took care of the least of these. In this final parable, which depicts God's final judgment, God is not at all concerned with profit or wealth. God is concerned with whether people took care of each other. And once again, this image of God stands in sharp contrast to the master in the parable of the talents, whose primary or only concern is the accumulation of wealth. Consider also the servant's behavior in the parable of the talents. As many biblical commentators have noted, if the two servants really did double their wealth by trading their money, they must have done so by lending out money and charging egregious interest, thus exploiting the poor to increase their master's spoils. Could it be that with these three consecutive parables, Jesus is telling his disciples, one, to stay alert for God's coming kingdom. Because two, while the world looks like a rat race in which you accumulate more by taking from the less fortunate, 
Three, God's kingdom does not work that way at all. God judges people not by their wealth or even their work ethic, but by the care and attention they give to the poor. If the parable of the talents is a story about the greedy way the world is versus the compassionate way God's kingdom operates, then suddenly the third servant who buried his money is no longer a failure, but an example of a brave resistor who refused to exploit his neighbor in order to please the powers or work his way up the ladder. Thus the powers cast him out, much in the same way the powers will reject Christ himself for siding with the oppressed rather than supporting the authority of the religious and political leaders. When we read the parable this way, Stewardship, then, is about more than using one's talents for good. Stewardship is also about active resistance to corruption and an unwavering commitment to the downtrodden and the outcast. It is paying careful attention with our time and our money to whomever it is society has deemed to be the least of these. Thus the call to give to the church It's not a quiet, private act of the genteel, but the radical behavior of Christ's own revolutionaries who are faithful enough to keep believing in a different world, in a different kingdom, who risk their reputations, their positions, and even their finances to keep this faith. Amen.